Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 126, A Christian Dialogue on Voting Third Party, Part 3. Welcome back to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, this time part three in an ongoing discussion that I'm having with two friends of mine on third-party voting options for those of us uh, evangelical Christians who are uh, disaffected by the Republican Party. Um, My friends and I are discussing what, uh, in particular, two third-party alternatives, the Libertarian Party and the Constitution Party, and we're talking about their strengths uh, in regards to um, what disaffected conservative Christian Republicans um, are, you know, what appealed to them as well as weaknesses and, and what some, some of the similarities and differences between the two parties are. In last episode, my friend Karen Harlos uh, talked a bit about her involvement in the Libertarian Party. So let me first begin by welcoming, welcoming her back to the discussion. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. All right, thank you. How have you been since uh, we recorded part two? How have things been on the Libertarian front? Crazy, busy, amazing. No specifics? <laughs> well, uh, you, I mean, if anyone's been watching the news, I mean, they, we've been picking off uh, GOP endorsements, rising in the polls. The We, we ended up losing the, well, get, getting our, our lawsuit dismissed, but it looks like Gary Johnson's going to, or has a good chance of making it into the debates simply on merit. And the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates sent out a memo to its host sites that they should make alternate plans on the stage for three podiums instead of two. I read that just today. I, I read that it wasn't necessarily, you know, an indication that they were committed to making that third platform available, but that they were trying Plan. to prepare. Yeah, right, that, just in case. Just in case. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, um, you know, as we talked about in part two, I have my reservations and some concerns about the Libertarian Party. But even if I don't end up voting for Gary Johnson, uh, if I had to choose between him, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, obviously I would vote. I, I would prefer Gary Johnson. So um, I do hope that he makes it onto the, the debate. Um, well, again, thank you for being here. I'm going to turn now to my other guest who, uh, as we have discussed briefly in the past two parts, is, is here discussing his support tentative support for the Constitution Party, which will be the focus of today's episode. Uh, Christopher Ray, or, or Chris, th- how are, thank you for being here today as well. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. And how have you been, uh, and how have things been in the you know Constitution Party and New Conservative Party front since last we recorded? Been very, very busy. We've had uh, a whole lot of activity going on and some some upheavals and reorganizations. Uh, you know, it's it's been really interesting, especially since uh, yesterday's announcement that Evan McMullen is running as an independent, you know, that, of course, is starting a whole different round of conversations uh, among the disaffected conservatives that I rub uh, Facebook shoulders with, uh, trying to figure out, do we back this guy? What do we do? Do we go castle? I mean, it's it's just really caused a lot of rehashing of some of the conversations that we've had, you know, over the last couple of months. Mm. 
you know, I mentioned that in the last episode, in part two of this discussion, we focused primarily on the Libertarian Party, and we began that episode by getting to know how, how it is that Karen became involved in the Libertarian Party. Uh, so likewise, let's start with you and how you became involved in uh, the Constitution Party and, and, and how it is that you came to tentatively support them, uh, as well as, you know, broad, more broadly, a, a new conservative party. Tell us about that. So, Chris, when I decided uh, back in June to actually exit the GOP, uh, which, by the way, is something that's going on in mass over the next month or month and a half as well. Uh, but when I made that decision, I said, you know, where do I want to be? Uh, really good friend of mine, very politically interested, very knowledgeable, is an independent. And he says that's exactly why I'm independent. Uh, but I didn't really that didn't really resonate with me. Uh, you know, I believe that we can do a lot more together than individually, uh, and that's one reason I think parties are a good thing. Uh, so I was reading various party platforms. Uh, you know, some of the parties I was looking at are very, very small, uh, which is okay. They've got their place, but I really wanted to be in one of the five major parties, uh, you know, which are Democrat, GOP, Green Party, Libertarian Party, and Constitution Party. And as I was reading through the platforms, you know, the, the Constitution Party's seven principles and the planks of their platform really resonated well with me being pro-life, with me being very interested in states' rights, very interested in constitutional originalism, mm. uh, as I've grown to call it, uh, and in personal liberty. And I felt that that really resonated well with me. Uh, out of the investigations that I did, yeah. Well, let's let's explore some of those then. Uh, there's a host of things I'm sure that we could talk about in terms of the Constitution Party platform. You know, they've got seven principles and key issues and platform and resolutions, and we could spend hours, I'm sure, just pouring through them. But in terms of the the principles or uh, you know planks of the platform, key issues that most stand out to you as likely the kinds of things that would make the Constitution Party a good fit for disaffected Christian Republicans. Um, talk about a few of those, the ones that, that you think stand out most in that regard. Sure, definitely. And, and the ones that stand out the most to me, those are some really interesting things when you get into into the more nuanced platform. But they are really the seven principles that the Constitution Party's identified kind of as those those big rocks, those primary planks. Uh, and those are, and I'll read their summaries of, here, of them sure. here, sanctity of life, which is life for all human beings from conception to natural death. So that covers everything from abortion, which they oppose in all its forms, including, uh, uh, including rape and incest. Uh, they do not make allowances for that. Those, there had been historically some discussion on that. Uh, it covers euthanasia. It covers all of that. Uh, the second one is liberty, uh, religious freedom, personal liberty, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom from coercion in how you live your life. I, I noticed, uh, by the way, that they that although they do have the phrase religious freedom there, they also have the the, the phrase freedom of conscience, as as the three of us talked about in past episodes. Correct, like correct. Uh, as far as the family, you know, they're very uh, what constant or what Christian conservatives would often call pro-family, meaning that they believe in the nuclear family, a mother, a father, their children, as the divinely designed 
way for a family to function. So that gets into issues like homosexuality, uh, bigamy, plurality, I mean, a variety of different things there. Mm. Uh, they believe in property rights, uh, that, you know, they, they don't believe the government should be, uh, be reaching into our property. Uh, and they believe that the Constitution is very well defined what the government can do as far as, say, ownership of land and things like that. And they believe in limiting the government uh, to those constitutional provisions. <clears throat> okay. The next one is the Constitution. And this is where I talk about being constitutional originalists, meaning that in their opinion, as in mine, the Constitution is not a fluid document, that the Constitution is a fixed document that was founded or put together by the founding fathers, and that when you're approaching interpretation of that document, it ought to be interpreted as the founding fathers would have interpreted it, rather than trying to remold it in a modern lens. Yeah. Ra Sorry, go ahead. Rather transporting it forward and saying, if these same men who wrote this document were faced with this issue, how do we believe that they would have handled it uh, in the spirit of the Constitution? Right. And, and I really like this one and would just maybe push back a little bit on, on the statement that it's not a, a fluid document or a living document. I actually think there's a, a profound and important sense in which it is, but it's not the sense in which, uh, you know, revisionists tend to think that it is, that liberals tend to think that it is. Uh, I think it, it's fluid and living in the sense that it's amendable. And I think that's really critical because when I see people trying Absolutely. to rest restrict gun rights, um, what I keep telling people is, look, if you want – I'm all for having the debate over gun rights. And, and, if the, and if the will of the people is to restrict them, for example, fine, but do it the constitutional way. Amend the constitution. Don't pretend it says something it doesn't say. So anyway, I, 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 this is something that really strikes me, uh, really resonates with me uh, in terms of uh, the Constitution Party's principles. So we've got life, liberty, family, property, constitution. Um, that's five. What are the next two? Uh, the next two are, and I'll, I'll read these here because I think it's important the way that, that we word them. Uh, one of them is states' rights, which is that everything not spe specifically delegated by the Constitution to the federal government, nor prohibited by the Constitution to the states, is reserved to the states or to the people. And this speaks a lot to this idea of a... a loose federation, so to speak, where the government has certain powers, but ultimately, in the majority of issues, the states are sovereign, and a belief that the Constitution set it up that way, and if the Constitution did not grant a certain type of power to the federal government, that the federal government uh, should not assume that power, should not be granted that power, apart from the amendment process in the Constitution. Mm. And the next one is American sovereignty. And this is where a lot of their detractors uh, tend to try and uh, they label them for all sorts of things as, uh, you know, isolationists and, and et cetera, et cetera, that I'm sure we'll get into. But they say American government committed to the protection of the borders, trade, and common defense of Americans with no entanglement in foreign alliances. And that's one that takes some explanation, I believe, to understand it properly. Uh, but this, this absence from entanglement, or I would say 
undue entanglement in foreign affairs and in foreign alliances is a big one for them. Mm. Um, can uh, Do you mind sure. if I jump in a second? There's a lot of points of agreement, as you may have noticed. Um, this one is a big point of agreement. Also in the LP platform is that the country should avoid entangling alliances. So I just wanted to... Um, put that in there, but I'd have more input when he's done with the points. I don't want to sidetrack the points. That was my last one. Oh, okay. Well, those um, are, well, those are the seven principles, but just before we move on, cause, cause I actually, you know, resonate, a lot of these resonate with me and there, there's a lot that attracts me to this party, but even I have, uh, my own criticisms that I'll be asking you guys about. And I'm sure that Karen, you will as well. But before we move on to those, I just wonder, and this goes to both of you, um, besides these broad seven principles, are there maybe specifics that sort of flow out of these seven principles that you guys might want to highlight as, um, you know, possibly being particularly strong uh, attractions for disaffected Christian Republicans. I mean, Karen, you've already mentioned some of the similarities between this platform and the libertarian platform. Are there any specifics, though, flowing from these seven principles that you could see attracting somebody like us? Well, I'm not going to be stumping for the Constitution <laughs> Party here, so, but I, I'd like to acknowledge where there is some similarities because where the similarities are, I think, is where the contradictions come in because mm. I do not think the Constitution Party can consistently adhere to what it says in some points, particularly when it talks about freedoms. Um, and then there is the whole... We might as well bring the word up now because it's going to come up, uh, the whole theocratic uh, element to it, which is a major difference. But I wanted to acknowledge the similarities. Of course, uh, the the Constitution Party is much more libertarian than, say, the the than I think the Republican Party is, um, well, and certainly more than the Democratic Party is. But you know, the, you know the joke I like to give, um, Chris, when we were talking about biblical prophecy and things like that, where I'd say, you know, well, allegedly, you know, people and chimps got ninety nine percent DNA in common, but it's that last one percent that's the real kicker. Mm, yeah. And and just for the record, and I, I, won't, I won't speak for you, but it, that really is a joke. And I don't I don't believe that, uh, that that humans and apes share a common ancestor. And at least at one point you did neither. That may have changed, but I, because many of my listeners know I'm a young Earth creationist, I wanted to let them know that that really just was a joke, at least from my perspective. Well, I didn't even mean it as a common ancestor. I mean, we do share a lot of DNA. That could Fair be enough. a common creator. I'm not getting into that whole thing. <laughs> no, I, I'm just I'm just saying, and my views have shifted on that a little bit. But we're not going to get into that um but just saying that things can have a lot in common but a lot of times yeah. it's the difference that makes the difference well like i said i've i've got my own you know comments and, and concerns but before we turn to sort of you know the, the negative sides of this you know whatever those are uh are, is there anything else that you'd like to highlight chris in terms of uh what might attract disaffected christian republicans to this party Another thing that, that could attract a lot of Christians and definitely was part of the attraction to me is that they really make a point, and some people would say they go too far in this point, but they really make a point of acknowledging where our liberties come from. Mm. And they make a point of acknowledging that it is the scriptures and scriptural reasoning that gives us morality, 
that gives us our liberties, which the government doesn't give to us, but the government recognizes. And I think that that not only will appeal to a lot of Christians, but particularly a lot of historically minded Christians, because that was done a lot in the founding generation. There was a real sense of this hand of providence and this this idea of a creator that all men were endowed with these rights, Jefferson wrote in the Declaration, by their creator. And I think that that is one of the things that has attracted and will attract a lot of conservative Christians to this party because the party unabashedly uh, says that uh, while not saying that we ought to be making laws that infringe on the religious liberty of others solely based on that. Yeah, and I, I actually really appreciate that. I, I think I, I think it's really critical that the Declaration of Independence and um, and, and possibly to an extent that the Constitution they they ground the Bill of Rights ground our freedoms, our liberties in our being created. Because I mean, if we're if we're honest and if we're logical, if if those um, if whatever liberties and freedoms we have aren't grounded in our having been created, um, then you know if the Libertarian Party takes over, uh, you know, and gives everybody freedom, there's no real, there's no real objective grounding to that. It seems to me anyway. And so the next generation might come and, 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 and step on all of that and, and change direction. Now, the same thing could be true if the constitution party, uh, gained power. Um, but I like the idea that, that the founding documents, the, the, the grounding that the founding documents have of, of our liberties in, in, in our having been created is something that the Constitution Party echoes. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Um, and if I can put a shameless plug in there, there <laughs> there's a book that I reviewed recently on my website that's a brand new book that speaks so, so well to that called Believers, Thinkers, and Founders. It's written by Kevin Hassan who was the founding lawyer in the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, uh, which is famous for many things, not the least of which is uh, representing Hobby Lobby in the recent Supreme Court case. Uh, But his book, Believers, Believers, Thinkers, and Founders, really addresses that, I believe, very fairly. Yeah. Well, anything Uh, else? Oh, go ahead. While the Declaration of Independence does indeed ground things in the the nature of being created, um, I would question the wisdom of making that a political policy. That was sort of their, you know, rationale for what they did. But uh, let's come at it from Christians. We would say that people have this because they have the image of God in themselves, that they could recognize this even when they don't recognize it. When they might not recognize the source, they recognize the reality of it. And I do not necessarily see um, the, 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 the reason to insist. That, that's not even the right word. I think we can appeal to the intuitive knowledge that we all have of these freedoms and of our nature without necessarily in the political process turning people away perhaps unwittingly that don't accept that explicitly so that's just one thing i would i I would point out um 
you know, that's a, that would be a difference. I mean, there, it's unabashedly, let's, I mean, let's get this right up front. I actually think this is a feature and not a bug is in the, the libertarian party is a secular party and the constitution party is unabashedly a religious party. And I'm very concerned about that mixing. Um, I, I tend to think also when, when you mix religion with this reverence for the Constitution, it be, and I don't mean this towards you, um, Christopher, at all. Um, I'm speaking very generally. For some people, it, it, it takes on an almost idolatrous tone that makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, a, a lot of the Christian mixing with the Constitution and with patriotism and with nationalism gets into a really strange mix. And then you, you have the Constitution Party saying it is um, it, it's, its reason for existence is to uh, reestablish a Christian system of jurisprudence. Well, you know, unless you're just dealing with the basic negative rights of people, just saying it that way, I think really opens the Pandora's box because we know if we're going to be honest as Christians, there are, we might think some of them are wrong. We may even say some of these people aren't quote unquote real Christians, whatever we want to say, that there's an awful lot that can be justified under the realm of Christian jurisprudence. And we've seen some of this in some Constitution Party people. Uh, I was just watching a documentary earlier today. I'm not trying to say these are Constitution Party people. I'm, I'm going to segue on the quiverful movement and there is a certain tone moving not that extreme of this vision forum patriarchal type thing of some undertones that that did exist in the constitution party's history um, I'm not saying that they support it. I'm just saying it flows naturally from it in the same way that there are libertines that are associated with the Libertarian Party. That does flow naturally from that, from that. Let's be fair. But when you start saying God said so and you insert that into politics and you give it the force of the state, I don't know, but that scares me. Uh, can I interject there? Absolutely. You, you covered a few things there. Um, I, I just want to push back a little bit with you because, because I agree with you on one hand, and I think we've seen a really good examples uh, in the moral majority movement and in uh, the, uh, oh, I forget, Robert, I think it was Robert Reed, or I forget his name, that's the wrong name, but we've seen examples of that extreme um, Christian, religious, patriotic zealotry. Uh, but I think that one thing that I would want to push back on is that even outside of Christian circles, in the history of looking at the people who wrote about liberty, even if we're talking back in 16th century France or even going back to Plato, uh, you know, all of the great writers on freedom and liberty and society, virtually all of them recognized that these liberties came from a creator, came from a higher power, if you will. And I think there's something to be said for acknowledging that we're not the greatest thing in the universe without going so far as saying Jesus Christ is the head of our, 
our government and our, our liberty system and our freedom system. I think there's a middle ground to be had there. And, and I'll just add that I, I don't buy that um, appealing to some sort of universal intuition that human beings have that people should should have liberty. I, I, don't, I don't buy that 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 is in fact universal intuition uh, i mean the history of the world and including co- contemporary history is replete with examples of um tyrants who don't think uh, who don't appear to intuit that human beings have a right to liberty and i would and i would go so far as to say that even um many average ordinary people particularly that lean toward say the democrat party uh, maybe even the republican party don't necessarily share that intuition because they're apparently willing to give up liberty um in all in all sorts of cases, um, so so I guess what I'm I guess I'm just saying I don't think that human beings have a, a universal intuition that can be appealed to as the grounding for a constitutional a constitutionally provided freedom. I think that uh, as the founders did, grounding that in the in in our having been created by a god who grants us those inalienable rights is very critical even if god isn't the basis for all of the specific laws that get passed if he's the grounding for our liberty i think that's really important and and that's enough you see let me push back more then you're as we move increasingly into a secular society if you don't appeal to something else, you are giving grounds for tyrants, actually, who have a people that don't accept that to just dismiss that. I, I would absolutely disagree with you. People do have this intuition. And I would appeal to you as a Christian, because if we believe that this intuition as to the inherent freedoms and dignities of men comes from the image of God in us. It can be suppressed, but it exists. It has to universally exist, or we're, de- we're, we're denying a certain universal wiz- uh, witness that I'm appealing to you as a Christian that we need to consistently can you believe get, in. Can you provide me any evidence that the image of God it, it instills in all people created in it uh, a sense that we have God-granted liberty? I, to me, that's self, you know, let, this, this is kind of interesting because it'll be using some of the, the language from the Declaration of Independence. They declared it to be self-evident and then went on to talk about the creator. I think even without talking about the creator that these truths are self-evident. People who do not believe in a creator might not know why they are. But to me, it's, it, it's self-evident that it's self-evident. Maybe I can't argue to it. I'm speaking to something that I do think is inherent in all people unless they're sociopaths, which tyrants generally tend to be. Okay, but it's not just tyrants. As I've already indicated, there are plenty, average, plenty of average Joes who don't apparently think that uh, that human beings have at least a number of the liberties that I think the three of us would agree we do. Um, now, let's granting for the sake of argument that there is this self-evident nature of our God-given liberty. Fine, but the question, but 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 if what's happening is that many masses of people, tyrants and normal people people alike uh, are suppressing it, they're, they're still suppressing it. And so appealing to something that they're suppressing does not seem to me to be all that effective. But but Chris, you were about to say something. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, wa- I wanted to chime in here and, and agree with Karen and then disagree with her in the next breath. Uh, and, you know, one of the things, anytime I think of, well, do people have this inherent knowledge of X, whether X is liberty or X is God or X is sin or X is mathematics, you know, I think a lot of, of, um, of Romans 1 and Romans 2, you know, where Paul talks about how 
even innately, we have an understanding that there is a God and that we are sinful and things like that. And I'm not saying these are the same thing, but what I'm saying is that that speaks to the fact that even in our fallenness, even in our brokenness, there is still something in us that speaks of our Creator. Sure, I agree. And I, I think that. that's very important. But where I'm gonna where I'm gonna then push back even more a little bit on Karen there is that if we postulate that we can take liberty and ground it in completely secularized language. And what I mean by that is language that has no explicit or implicit acknowledgement of a creator and a higher power, then if you take that to its logical conclusion, if we really are simply amoebas that evolved over millions and millions of years and it's all meaningless, then there's no grounding for that liberty. There's no reason why that should be true. This is something that comes up a lot uh, in debates with the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, is that if what they're saying is true, then there is no reason for morality. There is no reason I would expand that to say for liberty. And it becomes very easy then to circumvent that and say, well, we only have liberty because it was your idea that we have liberty. I don't disagree. And as a Christian, I would obviously agree with those presuppositions. I'm a presuppositionalist, so that would, you know, and a determinist, so there you go. <laughs> but um, just because people live in a state of incoherence doesn't mean you still can't appeal to their intuitions because they exist. They might not be able to in their own mind if they examined it to ground it. But I don't think when we're, we're establishing political policy that we have to get down into that. So I, I just don't see that as an attraction necessarily of the CP. Um, I, I, I don't think necessarily uh, that, I guess there's really nothing more I could add to that. That was just stated as, as, as one of the groundings. The fact is we are living in an increasingly secular society and you're going to have to find other ways to appeal to people's something. Because if you immediately come out with, but God, they're going to, they, they don't accept that. And you have to find a common ground that they do accept. So we could go back on and forth on this forever. Let's let's let you, Karen, have the last word on that specific part of this, and let's talk about some other issues because I want to make sure that we've at least had time to hear these out. Um, this isn't the only one uh, that you know that somebody might that, that give my that might give somebody pause who would otherwise consider the Constitution Party. There are others, even even. Um, for those of us who are, you know, very super conservative Christians. Uh, so, f and I'll start with one that is kind of broad and, and, and a blanket thing, kind of like this, this, the issue we've been discussing, the, the, the tendency that some perceive the party to have, uh, toward being, um, theocratic. There's also this tendency that it seems to have across the board of being extremely conspiratorial. Um, I understand there are such things as legitimate conspiracies, but it really does seem to me to be taken to a bit of an extreme by the Constitution Party, so much so that it's, you know, part of the um, 
part of the, uh, the the website's key issues. You know, the last one, this Agenda 21, is this comprehensive. You can almost hear my my, my voice echoing as I'm reading this, as if I were some sort of a <laughs> some sort of a um, a movie trailer narrator or something like that. Agenda 21 is a comprehensive plan of utopian environmentalism, social engineering, and global political control that was initiated at the UN Conference on Environmental and Development held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, in 1992, and on and on it goes. Now, now much of that. May be true, maybe even all of it, but it but it just sort of captures what seems to me to be this tendency of the Constitution Party, or at least some of its its leaders, to to be a little bit out there in la la land in 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 their in extreme conspiratorial, uh, you know, conspiracy theory theory ideas. So I'm just wondering, Chris, have you is this something that is cause for concern at all for you? And and if so, uh, you know, what would you have to say to that? And if not, what would you say in defense? The only concern for me in that, having having read read that uh, several times, is maybe the the quality of the writing. Quite frankly, because I think that the way it's written does tend to give that conspiratorial edge to it, if you will. But if you look in a little deeper into the content of this, and we talk about you know this Agenda Twenty One, which historically is a real thing, okay, regardless of how you frame it. If we, if we were to say, you know, there really seems to be a, a movement afoot among the left to encourage this sustainable development to everyone's detriment and to the point where it becomes a government control mechanism for big government. I, I think that we could agree on that statement. And I believe that that, you know, even with maybe it's less than stellar writing, uh, is really what this statement is talking about, is something that in other language, we would probably all say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely something that the left uh, appears to be doing. Karen, let me turn to you. If if it if you, you know, are pretty much in agreement with Chris on this point, then, you know, maybe I'll not have any concerns either. But I just wonder, have you, have you gotten a, an impression similar to the one that I described? And if you have, do you think it extends beyond just merely this Agenda 21 thing? You know, in general, libertarian, okay, let me reword that. I think that the, the Constitution Party has some very strong libertarian streaks in it. So I, I see, I feel a kinship on those issues. So then branching out from that, libertarians in general tend to have that type of worldview. We don't trust the states and we don't trust a lot of programs. And I would say in all fairness, it does trouble me that it's in their platform. But in all fairness, the Libertarian Party has its own deep streak of conspiracy theory type people in its membership, but we have kept it out of our platform. Um, so I think it's somewhat, it comes with the territory of libertarianism to sometimes take flights of fancy as to what the state is up to. I don't buy into that, not because I don't think that they would do it. I just don't think they're that competent. Yeah, same here. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of my view. But we, we face that challenge in the LP a little bit as well. But keeping it out of the platform is something that we've managed to do from the beginning. So I do share your concerns about it being in there. But I think it's kind of an it, it's it's an artifact of libertarianism it's going to be in any libertarianish group you're going to have that segment 
Okay. If I could clarify, it's actually not a plank of the platform, but rather one of the key issues that they have a resolution on. Yeah. But it doesn't appear to be an official plank of the platform. I got you. I would be concerned about it being an official resolution, but I, I point well taken. That's what I was going to say. It, it may be an issue of splitting hairs, but but what I will say is that uh, you know this, although it does concern me a little bit, isn't something that I um, that necessarily you know inclines me away from the Constitution Party. It's just it's just it, it it's it's sort of like you know you have a lot of respect for. Um, Mel Gibson's character in the movie Conspiracy Theory, but there are some extremes that that character goes to that make you kind of embarrassed for him, and and, and I kind of feel that way here. But, you know, I haven't done enough research into the topic. I want to move on to three specific things, if we if we have time to get to all three, and, and we won't if, if Karen has some specifics she'd like to discuss, which is totally fine. But let me start with one that um, that... I think we should at least talk a little bit about, which is the Constitution Party's um, stance on amnesty. So amnesty is one of the key issues listed on this page. And, you know, I'm the first person to um, to, to be dissatisfied with the, the way that um, illegal immigrants are, from my perspective anyway, uh, allowed to get away with anything they want. It seems to me that they can illegally vote. It seems to me they can, uh, you know, um, they, they can, there's, it just, they, they can get free health care. I mean, there's all sorts of things that it seems to me illegal immigrants have access to without um, having to go through the legal channels to get to that point and without even being uh, eligible to vote. I think that their votes are being counted. Um, and, and I think there are a number of other issues as well. So I'm the first person to take issue with the immigration problem. However, it seems to me that particularly as Christians who have, or at least ought to have compassion and love for people that may be fleeing to this country from, from an oppressive one or from one in which they're uh, sort of under the thumb of government and of corruption and so forth, to, to not, to, to, it seems to me that to not want at least to seek a way for those people having come here uh, to, to, um, to become citizens legally in some way um, that that seems to me like it would be a real lack of any party that would claim to represent Christian principles or biblical principles. Now, maybe I've misunderstood this issue in the Constitution platform, but it is it does it is striking to me that the way the website reads is the Constitution Party stands alone in its opposition to amnesty. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about what the Constitution Party stance is on amnesty and to what extent, if any, they are willing to work with people that have already come here illegally to help them to become citizens without just sort of booting them out and making them go through whatever the flawed channels are that exist? Absolutely. And it's interesting that you brought this one up because, and this may or may not surprise you, but this is one area where I really like the way that they've written this. I really agree with their position here, which is no amnesty for anyone who's come here illegally. And, and I know that sounds like a hardline stance, but let me, let me present to you a couple of scenarios. And I, I'm not a, an incompassionate person, but let me present to you a couple of scenarios. If it is illegal to drive without a driver's license and you start driving without a driver's license at the age of 18. And at the age of 45, you're pulled over. And they say, you're driving without a driver's license. If you were to say to them, well, yeah, but I've been doing this for 27 years. 
the officer would be ridiculous to say, okay, sir, you're right. You've been breaking the law so long. Don't worry about it. In fact, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Uh, here, let me grab you, grab you a license and, and give that to you. Just take take a written test and you'll be fine. Yeah, but that's a, I mean, I mean come on, that, that's an incredibly uh, simplistic caricature of what it is. That... Of course it is, okay. but it makes a point. It's saying that it doesn't matter how long someone has been breaking the law, or it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how long it is that they've been getting away with whatever they're getting away with. It's still against the law, it's still something that they've done unjustly, unrightly, which I believe we as Christians ought to stand for justice. And what that means is not only standing for justice for those who have broken the law, but working to ensure that we have a country with fair and ethical and constitutional immigration policies. I wholeheartedly agree, but but it's not just as Christians we're not only to be just, we're also we're also when appropriate to be merciful. And Absolutely. I'm not, and and it sounds like you know the it sounds like perhaps the Constitution Party would be for um, improving the immigration process and 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 making it perhaps easier for people that want to come here legally to do so. And I think that's fantastic. But but everything that you said, from my perspective anyway, um, is really moot and, ir- and irrelevant to my point, which has nothing to do with how long a person has been breaking the law and it should just be excused or anything like that. It has to do with if you've got a, a family that has come here because uh, they were being persecuted in where they were coming from or whatever, and this is they have to be here in order to survive, in order to live, in order for their children to be cared for. I struggle emotionally and to a certain extent logically, I think, to say that the right solution is to just send them back across the border and hope that they'll manage to make it through whatever our, whatever system we have to get them legally here. That does, there's something that feels wrong about that. I understand that, and that resonates with me as well. That resonates with me as well. The, uh, the alternative, though is no, no, it may be more compassionate in a sense, but it's definitely no more right, no more just. I've not seen a good solution to say, and oh, I'm, fall, I'm falling over <laughs> my words here, I apologize. Oh, I'm like chomping. <laughs> we'll get to you in a second, Karen, hold on. <laughs> Wow, we're going to have to edit this. No, it's fine. Look, I'll tell you what. This is what it seems to me. It sounds to me that what you're saying is um, – what, what you're saying sounds as if – and I know this isn't the way you intend it. But it sounds as if it's the setting up of a false dichotomy. It doesn't seem to me that the only two options are either um, forgive everybody, don't, have, don't make them do anything to uh, make up for the, 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 crim- the, the crimes they've been committing for however many years they've been here. Just totally excuse it, make them citizens immediately, and wash your hands clean of it. Uh, or the other extreme, which was which, which is kick them all out the hell out of Dodge. I don't think those are the only two extremes. I, mean, I don't think that those okay. two extremes are the uh, only and, possible and, and I understand that. And I understand that. And I know we've seen a lot of uh, attempts at alleviating those extremes, a path to citizenship, a path to legitimacy, you know, lots of things that we've heard thrown around. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. 
So at least it sounds like you're saying that perhaps the Constitution Party's stance is the best of all of the options, even if it's not 100% satisfying. Would you say that's fair? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to see millions of people loaded up on buses and, and carted down south of the border either. Okay. okay? I don't want to see families ripped apart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I also think that there is something to be said for you can't simply say wrong is right. It's okay because across yeah. the board. Yeah. No, I, I, I'll agree with you there. Karen, I know you're, you're chomping at the bit. Yes, I, I am chomping at the bit. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot here. For one thing, well, he, he got into it. At one point, uh, Christopher, you had, it seemed to be a very just like set in stone. If it's illegal, it's wrong. And I would say there, there are plenty of times where laws are simply not fair, just or merciful. And in which case it is perfectly fine to um, set them aside or disregard them. I know later on then you started arguing for the rightness of it, but in the beginning you had not. Um, with your driver's license example, that is legally a fallacious um, comparison because there are – you want me to give you a, a comparison that fits better – in at least common law, there are things recognized as squatter's rights that when there, there's a difference between driving and you physically body implanting yourself and making a life somewhere. And I think the much better analogy would be to squatter's rights. They've been here. They've flown under the radar. They've set up a life. They've um, you know in, entrenched into our economic system that there is some kind of a, another legal concept I would bring in is waiver and estoppel that has gone on and that would apply here much more so than the driver's license analogy that, that was going to be my second analogy i interrupted him and didn't let him finish because oh, okay <laughs> so the, but the but onto the rightness or wrongness of it this is where there would be a a, a big point of the, the big point of departure between the constitution party and the libertarian party is on this issue the libertarian party I would argue that they're functionally open borders. Um, some libertarians would disagree with me. Uh, it seems like the current direction, if you look at the statements issued by the chair and at the leadership of the party, is that they tend to agree with me right now, but other libertarians don't. But if we believe in a free market, a free market is not just uh, physical goods. It's also human capital. And if we believe in the free flow of physical goods across borders, we should believe in the free flow of human capital across borders. And I believe that freedom of movement is a fundamental human right, and it, it does not diminish and in its vests in people, no matter, you know, what line, you know, what side of an arbitrary line. And I don't mean arbitrary. I'm not saying that it shouldn't exist, though. I have my own personal views. I mean, it's it's an accident of history a lot of times that where that line is drawn, that just because someone's born on one side or another, that they, they have different human rights. Um, and that's a, another point of disagreement, again, I would say, or difference between the Libertarian Party and the Constitution Party. We don't ground everything in the Constitution. We, we tend to take and again, I'm speaking for a lot of libertarians, not all. Some would vehemently disagree with me here. But we tend to say the Constitution is great to the extent that it protects rights, but where it doesn't, we go back to rights. We do not go back to the Constitution. Um, 
we believe in individual rights, not groups' rights, not state rights, not country rights, but individual rights. Hold up then. I need to interrupt there then. So are you saying that the Libertarian Party would be comfortable violating the Constitution on the grounds of uh, individual liberty? When, well, the party itself is an abstract entity. You know what I mean. Oh, actually, I don't. That's why I'm clarifying. Okay. Would, 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 would most libertarians or would the libertarians that, that are representatives of the party or, or, or its candidates, whatever, would they generally be comfortable violating the Constitution on the grounds that they have a higher uh, principle of that being personal individual liberty? I cannot think of a specific example. I would say in theory, yes, because our ultimate authority is not the Constitution. But I cannot think of a specific example. But let me give you a historical one. If we as libertarians lived back in the time of slavery, I'd say – oh, I almost cussed. Um, I would say yes, indeed, instead of the word I was going to say, we would violate the Constitution to free the slaves because that – the Constitution was absolutely incoherent. At that point, Um, I would say that a lot of libertarians do um, admire and idolize tax evaders. We think that that part of the Constitution is absolutely violative of rights. So I guess in that sense, you could say. Let me ask. I want to ask a question about this open borders idea that you mentioned, Karen, if that's all right. That's fine. So this open borders idea, this idea of the free movement of people as the same as free trade, understanding that, that open borders idea, would it endow those people, based on their location, with access to, say, government services? See, this is where you start going into, we're not starting from ground zero, and so... And this is going to come from my particular libertarian perspective. Again, each group has factions, and I'm of my own. But I'm of a philosophy that is dominant enough called no particular orderism, which means that you do not hold one harmful government policy hostage to the elimination of another government uh, policy. And this comes into play with open borders because a lot of libertarians will say, and perhaps you might say, open borders are great. Once we eliminate the welfare state and it, it gets into kind of a, a Stockholm syndrome situation where you're holding one policy hostage until they release their hostages and neither side is willing to release their hostages, thereby nothing happens. Uh, I'm of the libertarian wing of the libertarian party and we tend to say that open the borders and let the welfare system crash. That that tends to be our position Um that was said over the top, but made, the, the more rational way to say it would be if opening the borders then led to a stress on the welfare system, that should be used as motivation then to get rid of the welfare system. Okay, but it's not only, it's not only government services that come into play here. Take, for example, voting. Um, I, I'm going to guess that the Libertarian Party isn't advocating against voting, you know, the, the citizenry voting for the for the president, you know, understanding the nuance of the uh, the electoral um, votes and everything, but but I guess my point is, you would would the, would generally speaking, would libertarians say that people that have crossed the border illegally, however they define that, should be able to vote for the president as well? First, let me make one clarification that's making me a little bit uncomfortable. I can speak for some libertarians. Okay, you speak for the libertarian party. Yeah, thank you. In my position, I have to be very careful of that. Um, No, 
but there should be a very clear and easy path for them to establish themselves as citizens. Just because we think that people should be able to freely cross the border does not mean that they automatically become citizens, but they should have the choice to become it if they if they desire. And it should be very it should be easy and streamlined that we should be welcoming these people to become a productive part of our country. Well, look, I can wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and Chris, I'll, I'll turn to you in a second. But I just want to say what you've said sound like two very different positions. Um, I understand you're saying that by open borders, you just mean their ability to travel and maybe you mean their ability to reside and work. Yes. But, but, but it doesn't sound as if you're saying every single right and privilege and responsibility that a citizen has would also immediately be uh, granted to anybody who crosses the border. My position would be no, that that would have to be something they, you know, with with rights of citizenship comes certain obligations of citizenship. And I think that's something that needs to be voluntarily assumed. Not everyone that comes across the border wants to be a citizen. Um, so it, it starts getting into some sticky areas, but I would not say no, there's not automatic citizenship, but it should be extraordinarily easy for those who do want to become citizens. Generally, generally, I'm, I'm actually in agreement. But Chris, I want to I let you have the last word on this issue. Issue of, of uh, immigration and open borders before I move on to another issue. I think that this is really one of the, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the fallacies in the two-party system. This is one of the fallacies, I think, that's creating the environment for conversations like this, because we're constantly presented with two extreme options. And I would agree that the Constitution Party is one of those extreme options that we've often seen from the GOP and those on the religious right and things like that. The other extreme option is what we're seeing people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton advocate for. And I think that what I take away from this conversation is that this is a far more nuanced conversation than what we typically have in the public sphere. Do I believe that, uh, that amnesty is, is something that should happen? Absolutely not. Do I believe that there probably is a better solution than carting everybody off in buses? Absolutely. And I think that's really, you know, you look at the two candidates uh, that are uh, the predominant ones in the space right now. You've got Donald Trump, who's the cart off on a bus guy. And you've got Hillary Clinton, you know, who's in the amnesty camp. And I think that what, uh, what we've seen here is there are a lot of nuanced positions in between that should be being explored. Okay. Well, let's move on to another topic. Uh, Karen, I'm sure there might be a few that you have in mind. I want to bring up one more, and then I'll just let you bring up whichever ones you, you have left that you want to discuss. But I want to talk about this one because it's simultaneously something that I think will attract conservative uh, Christians that are disaffected with the Republican Party. And at the same time, I'm being redundant, I already said simultaneously, at the same time, uh, may turn some of them away. And it has to do with the party's uh, position on obscenity. So I want to read a little bit from this uh, from this 
part of the platform. It says, Pornography, obscenity, and sexually oriented businesses are a distortion of the true nature of sex created by God for the procreative union between one man and one woman in the holy bonds of matrimony. I agree. He goes on to say, due to a lack of prosecution, the sexually oriented business industry has proliferated, aggravating the problems of child pornography, human trafficking, and sexually transmitted diseases. This is decreasing our safety by increasing crime rates, specifically rape and molestation. In addition, there's a typo there, in addition to the loss of dignity belonging to all human beings. I love it. I think this is something that's, that is going to attract a lot of Christians. But then, it, but then there's this. We call on our local, state, and federal governments to uphold our First Amendment right to free speech by vigorously enforcing all laws against obscenity. Now, I'm sure that Karen has a word or two to say about the seeming inconsistency between the first clause and the second clause of that sentence, or or the first part and the second part. But what I want to note is that by saying enforce all laws against obscenity, that seems to me to be an incredibly large door, uh, an enormous Pandora's box that while you know cracking down on these very terrible distortions of the true nature of sex created by god pornography you know and, and sexually oriented businesses on the other hand i fear that it'll be grounds for cracking down on entertainment that i think christians can in good conscience some of them anyway uh, enjoy um, i'll go on the record and say that my wife and have enjoyed and do enjoy uh, game of thrones um, we we have enjoyed in the past True Blood, not as much as Game of Thrones. True Blood just isn't as good of a show. <laughs> uh, but but and there and there are other shows as well that we might enjoy. Now, as a male who has grown up in a highly sexualized culture, when when scenes are are you know come on, I will look away and wait for my wife to tell me it's okay to to turn back. We'll often mute things if if it's inappropriate sounds. But the point I'm getting at is that as a Christian man, I can enjoy these kinds of entertainment. I think. I'm, I'm, of course, assuming something in terms of Christian liberty, but I can enjoy these things with my wife, uh, and yet to many, this would qualify as obscene, and, you know, Game of Thrones, True Blood, and there are probably myriad other examples as well. So before I turn to Karen to, to let her highlight the seeming inconsistency or outright contradiction between the first and two parts of that sentence, I want to ask you, Chris, how would the Constitution Party distinguish between the kinds of obscenity that we all would agree should be uh, discouraged, if, if not, you know, criminalized, namely pornography and, and sexually oriented businesses. And on the other hand, uh, legitimate entertainment that a Christian can in good conscience enjoy. Well, Chris, I'm not going to make this quite, uh, probably quite as interesting uh, <laughs> as you're hoping for. Okay. Because I can't stand this part of their platform. Mm. I think it's terrible. I think it's an overstep. I think that it's in complete contradiction with the last sentence to the point that when you read that, I had to mute my phone so that you didn't hear my chuckle. (laughs) I believe that pornography and sexually explicit material is a plague. I believe that it's something that enslaves many, many Christian and non-Christian men and women to our detriment. However, I believe that when you work, when you do something that's going to abridge free speech, if you do something that's going to abridge free speech, you have to be extremely careful. And I, I don't believe that this is. Uh, I believe that it's in complete contradiction uh, with protection of free speech. 
I believe that it is something that is overly theocratic uh, in their platform. I know I'm arguing the other side here, <laughs> but it, just call a spade a spade. All right. Well, I thought this might be a little bit more of a, of a back and forth, but maybe not, Karen. What, what are your thoughts on this? I would say that I'm absolutely horrified by this plank, but I think it flows naturally from the preamble of establishing a quote-unquote Christian nation, but you bring in the um, inherent problem of who gets to decide. I I also watch Game of Thrones. Uh, True Blood was okay. There was some, there was, I agree with you there. But yeah, the, to, to say it, it's almost like war is peace and freedom is slavery. We are going to protect the First Amendment right to free speech by censorship. <laughs> I mean, that is just like incredibly dissonant that it, I, I cringe every time I, I hear that. I, I, I cringe. So I, I think we're all pretty much in, in, in agreement for it with, with that. Um, if freedom is... But I would say again, I, I would stress that this does, it, there is an internal coherence though to the fact that it's freedom. I, I, the, why, why I always say the Constitution Party is libertarian ish is because it's freedom with an asterisk. It's freedom as long as it falls within the purview of, of, of Christian morality that doesn't infringe upon it. it while we might want to live within the bounds of Christian morality, I object to laws simply being within those bounds because there are some things that we might consider sinful that don't impact our natural rights and we have no right to restrict other people from doing it. And I think this is one of it, but I think it has an internal consistency. The language is horrid, but there is an internal consistency, which is my fundamental objection to the Constitution Party. Well, and I have to I have to say two things here. First, I have to say, as a historian, which is the one of the few labels that I'll actually put on myself, I completely agree that to say that you need to do this because it's moral and to put that into law is a complete bastardization of everything that the founders and proto-founders like Roger Williams uh, fought for. And, and taught and, and that our entire system of liberty is based on. So I completely agree with you there. And because the two of you have, have chimed in about Game of Thrones, I have to tell you, my big problem with Game of Thrones is that they have entirely too much space between seasons. <laughs> hey, you, if, if you think that's bad, try getting hooked to Sherlock. Because, uh, the, the, you know, the... Um, What's his name? Uh, the, I think it's called Sherlock, right? The, the BBC show that they've got um, uh, with with Cumberbatch. That show has three like hour or hour and a half long episodes per season. They're basically movie length episodes, and there are three of them. But there's like two years between each season. Oh, that's horrendous! So, yeah, so don't don't be talking about that. Well, listen, but I want- we just demonstrated though, not with Sherlock. Um, there's no accounting for taste, I suppose. I'm just joking with you. Um, the We just demonstrated that one of the dangers of when you start grounding things in this type of um, standards, that there will be people who listen to this show, and you know it, that I'm sure there's going to be a blog post written about us somewhere about what terrible carnal Christians we are, and in something that is 
with some of the very theocratic elements of the Constitution Party, you know, we would be criminals. And that just really, really horrifies me. And and I would say even if we were talking about something that even us three would agree, you know, is actual pornography or whatever. And there's also, and you guys might not agree with me here, but I ask you to hear me out. And I will qualify this by saying I am not a feminist. Um, I'm an egalitarian. I'm not a feminist. But uh, whenever you say a but, that usually means something terrible is going to come <laughs> out of your mouth. But there is a very paternalistic quality to this platform that also disturbs me that I do not think belong in a political platform. We personally, people might have their own little patriarchal ideas or, you know, voluntarily between individuals, but it, it, it's, you know, it's the think of the women clause in the, uh, in the constitution party that kind of bothers me. It's, you know, to, to protect the most vulnerable people of our society, women and children. Well, I'm sorry. I find it somewhat offensive to be grouped in, with children i i don't need that i don't want that and that's but that goes into this whole there there is some history in the constitution party of that weird vision forum type family setup if you guys know what i mean i'm not trying to paint everyone with that brush because again i could point to some kookiness that goes on in the libertarian party i hope you hear that i'm trying to be fair i do it, but it flows from that, and that that concerns me. When I saw that the most vulnerable people in society, women and children, I'm like, okay, yes, lump, lump me in with children. Why don't you? Any final thoughts, Chris, on that before we move on to um, the last thing I want to talk about today? I, I'm still just trying to reconcile Calvinist and egalitarian, but that's okay. Well, holy cow, we're going to have to have another conversation because <laughs> because I am I am pretty much on the fence now having formerly been a convinced complementarian um but I am wholeheartedly calvinist and I see absolutely no inconsistency between calvinism and egalitarianism all, even all, I'm, all I'm saying all I'm saying as a born and bred egalitarian uh in one of the few denominations that from its inception ordained women uh most of the egalitarian arguments I read don't tend to be from Calvinists. Yeah, that, that may be true. But in either case, it now occurs to me that I'm going to get all sorts of criticism from people saying that I pitched this as a conversation among Christians about third-party voting options, and now that my two guests are both egalitarian heretics. This is fantastic. I can't wait to get the hate mail. And um, worse, one of them's an Arminian egalitarian And worse, one of them's heretic. an Arminian. And we all watch Game of Thrones. And we all watch Game of Thrones. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, listen. Um, I want to talk about one more uh, plank of the platform. One more <coughs> and there's actually one other thing I'd like to bring up as well, but... Well, then I'll turn to you first. <laughs> uh, so, Karen, I, you know, we, we can definitely tell that um, that for you, the, the one one of the most fundamental concerns you have with the Constitution Party is this grounding that it has in in what it what it professes are Christian biblical principles, and 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 how the planks, some of the planks that we have found troubling, flow naturally from that. From your perspective, I, I totally I understand where you're coming from there. Uh, but but as far as I as as I understand it, there's one other specific. You know, issue that you want to discuss um, before we move on. To, it, you know, yeah, it, it wouldn't be a plank issue. This is actually there. There was it, it's, it's again an overarching issue, but 
I don't like reinventing the wheel. Um, both parties have put out literature that compare the two. And there's actually one part that there's one, one thing I want to read from the, the LP literature that I thought very respectfully dealt with the differences. But this, I think, is a good summary if you don't mind. Um, it's, it states that in order for a society to be free and a religion to remain uncorrupt, there must be a distinct separation between the two. While it is a mistake on one side to believe our politicians must divorce themselves of their religious and moral beliefs before taking office, it is quite another to suggest that our political leaders should use their own personal precept of morality as a template for laws that apply to an entire nation. The Libertarian Party wants a world where all individuals are free to live their lives in peace without interference from government or their fellow man. This entails a tolerance of many other lifestyles, though not approval or acceptance, a key distinction, because it will be recognized that nobody should dictate anything else through law but freedom. Should society turn into a Christian society through this freedom, then so be it. And I think that is a key thing. There was a thought that I had as you were reading that. What would what would somebody who believes very firmly in that statement, as, as it sounds like you do, have to say about, say, you know, the first Congress spending a couple of hours in prayer before they even begin legislating, you know, I mean, is that the kind of violation between that separation that that language suggests would be a problem or, or, or is that just simply lawmakers expressing their, their faith together? I would see it as lawmakers expressing their faith together. And it was very much um, a part of that culture and culture changes, um, what may have been appropriate then might not be appropriate now, um, but I have no issue with that. I, I don't see that anyone was forced in, in any way. Okay. Well, because as you, I'm sure, know, there are plenty of um, plenty of people who would criticize the, the legislature if they did something like that, even if it were completely voluntary. You know, um, if, if their opening session started at, say, 9 a.m. or something like that, I don't know, I'm woefully ignorant of these things, but let's say they've got a session that begins at 9 a.m. and they just, and, and they have, you know, they set aside the first 15 minutes for anybody who wants to pray together. I could see a lot of, um, of, uh, of atheists and, and so-called advocates of the separation for church and state um, really complaining and, and raising a riot about that. And, and that would, I think that's foolish. I mean, I would agree with you. That sounds to me like lawmakers simply expressing their faith in community. Um, but anyway, I, I, I can understand what you're saying. Chris, do you, do you want to say a word or two on that before we move on? I would just say that, you know, historically speaking, the and I, and I hate the term separation of church and state so because I. it's not a constitutional term. Uh, and most people who use it have no idea of the context of that term. That's right. Um, but the idea was not to uh, anesthetize the government from religion. The idea behind this, and this is proven time and time again in the documentary evidence, was to protect the liberty of conscience of the individual and to keep the government from meddling in the affairs of the church. And I think that that's an important distinction that there are people who will argue that, but I believe that the evidence is, is strong on the side that this was a, a protection for the church and churches, excuse me, little c, and for the individual liberty of conscience of citizens, not a way to say our government needs to be a 
religiously neutral, That's right. sanitized body. Yeah, it had nothing to do with restricting religion's ability to influence government. It was all about restricting government's ability to influence religious expression. Absolutely, um, and there are far, far too many quotes from the founders that specifically talk about the influence of God, the Bible, and morality to have a moral society uh, to to believe otherwise, in my opinion. But 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 in in Karen's defense, it's her, it doesn't sound to me like what she's talking about is necessarily tied together with the specific language of a separation between church and state. Anyway, her, oh, her point. I'm, I'm not yeah. I'm not speaking against Karen in that. It was just a general point. Yeah. Well, I, I think that paragraph was probably getting more to um, a, a separation between certain laws and religion. Right. When it was getting into that, and I don't disagree with anything you said, but I would say, ironically, if you're talking about protecting individual conscience, if we want to call it the church, but I would call it anyone's individual conscience, even if it was the individual conscience to be a coven of Wiccans from the state, well, that's precisely what the Constitution Party is actually turning around. They want the state to to turn into a Christian nation, not a nation of Christians. There's a difference, I think. I, I don't agree. I, 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 based on the, the principle of, of upholding the Constitution, I think the Constitution Party would absolutely uphold the rights of a witch's coven to, to express their religion however it is that they want. Um, so I, I, I think and, and they've actually said as much to me, yeah. both their presidential candidate and their chairman. And, uh, we've discussed that specifically. Well, we've talked a lot about a lot of issues. Uh, I think it's been a very helpful conversation. I think that it's really highlighted some of the uh, what may be perceived to be the strengths of the Constitution Party and some of its weaknesses uh, insofar as we're talking about disaffected Christian Republicans. Um, what we haven't yet talked about hardly at all is its presidential candidate, that being Daryl Castle. Uh, Chris, you've had a couple of opportunities to interview Daryl Castle to talk to him. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think of Daryl Castle? You know, we, we talked, for example, in, in last episode about some key areas or at least one key area in which Gary Johnson differs from the party in a very important way. Um, where does Daryl Castle line up with the Constitution Party's platform um, and, and what are some strengths and weaknesses you see in him? Well, you know, it's interesting because in, in talking with Mr. Castle, uh, in a lot of ways, I would say he lines up perfectly with the platform. He really is kind of a, a party uh, poster boy, if you will. And I don't mean that, mean that in a, a pejorative sense at all. Um, but in speaking to him, um, I, I liked some of the issues that I had questions on particularly around his position on NATO, uh, his position on the UN, on Israel, mostly international relations. I thought that he had a very well-reasoned response to those. And it's one that I think my guess would be that my libertarian friends uh, would tend to agree with, because uh, I think that's one of the, the libertarian streaks, uh, if you will, in the party. And uh, if I can, can go into just a couple of the, uh, the things that, that I asked him in his responses here, I think that might be helpful. Sure. <clears throat> wait, 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 wait. Before, before you do that, are any of the things you're going to be discussing, because you mentioned Israel, and uh, as, Didi, as Karen knows, 
um, Israel is is something that's really important to me. And I'm wondering, uh, are you going to discuss anything that he had to say about Israel? Um, I can. Yeah, include that in what you're about to describe, because I'd like to know what his stance is. Okay, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so what I'll do here, and to give a little bit of uh, perspective on this, I gathered uh, questions from one of the groups that I moderate uh, on Facebook for what people wanted to know from Daryl Castle, and I kind of retooled some of those uh, and asked those to him myself. So I'm going to uh, go through a couple of these here. Okay. Uh, why do you want the United States to get out of NATO? It's a mutual... It's a mutual defense and military alliance with our allies in Europe. Isn't this an isolationist type of foreign policy? And Mr. Castle's response was, no, it's not isolationist. NATO was designed to act as a blocking force against Soviet aggression and actually serves to isolate us from non-NATO members and causes additional problems by giving an international bureaucracy control over U.S. policy. And I think that that's a nuance to to that position that you don't necessarily get just by reading the platform mm. uh, and one that could be easily misinterpreted uh, by by conservatives, conservative Christians. Uh, another one here, and it's it's related, but it's a little bit different. It's regarding the U.N., uh, it says, you know, China, France, Russia, UK, and the U.S. are the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council. Is there a downside to us vacating that place of influence, especially when it comes to being able to veto U.N. proposals that are hostile to Israel? And his answer here was that the U.N. has become ineffective. There's not a problem with us not being on the U.N. Security Council because the U.S. have effectively been the sole defenders of Israel since her statehood and would continue to be even without the U.N. As with Brexit, the elite in such organizations will always seek to suck people back in. And I think that that's very important because of the number of conservative Christians who have a burden for Israel and concern with that, saying, does he mean by pulling out of the UN, by pulling out of NATO, that we're not lo no longer to support Israel? I would say, no, he doesn't mean that. He means that we are already the biggest supporter of Israel and would continue to be apart from these excessive entanglements in these foreign organizations. That's good to hear. Uh Go on. Anything else that you want to add? Uh, here, here's a very interesting one uh, that is actually very libertarian, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Karen. Uh, I asked him, how does the Constitution Party feel about domestic partnerships? And he said, personally, it's none of the government's business who you marry or sleep with. Marriages are ordained by God, and the government ought to stay out of it. That's an important one, uh, and I think I think we'd find a lot of resonance there uh, between us. Uh, he said, I asked him how the Constitution Party would handle uh, situations like the Kleins, who are the bakers in Oregon who refused to, to bake the cake for the gay wedding, and he says he has full support for religious freedom, which does extend to people like the Kleins, 
and, and you know made some some comments regarding the uh, the libertarian candidate on that one. And so I followed up with that. How do non-Christians, particularly atheists and Jews, uh, fit into the Constitution Party? He says they fit in the same as everyone else. One's personal views are separate from government policies, which is very interesting because when you're looking at a candidate's position versus a party's platform, Oftentimes there is some dissonance there, and I think this is one area where the party's platform definitely makes it sound differently than many of the individuals at the top of the party uh, would articulate. Okay. Well, is there anything, um, you know, in in the interest of transparency, and, and, you know, we talked about a big negative that each of us uh, perceived in Gary Johnson. Are, are there any negatives that you think should be brought to our attention concerning Daryl Castle, just again in the interest of transparency? Uh, my two biggest difficulties with Daryl Castle, and, and I like the man, I found him very genuine, very easy to talk to, uh, uh, seems like a, a genuinely good guy. My, my two issues with him, one has to do with ability and one has to do with winability. As far as ability, he's an attorney by trade. He's a bankruptcy attorney, which I have no problem with. And he doesn't have any governing experience. This is one of my biggest problems with Donald Trump. He's a supposedly successful businessman, though we haven't seen his taxes yet. Uh, but he has no experience governing. He has no experience working with Congress. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. It's very rare that someone has become president in this country with no governing experience. And those that did become president without that had extensive military experience and experience working with government through that. The fact that Mr. Castle, uh, apart from his notable and honorable service in Vietnam in our military, the fact that he doesn't have any governmental experience it, it is a red flag for me. That's a difficulty uh, that I find. Okay. The second difficulty that I find is in charisma and in speaking ability. Hmm. And I've listened to his podcasts, I've watched interviews, and I've spoken with him personally. So I think I've gotten a, a pretty broad taste for his presentation. He, he'd have a difficult time, I believe, on the debate stage. Mm. He'd have a difficult time capturing the interest of the American people. And while we may say charisma shouldn't matter, the reality is that charisma does matter in getting someone elected uh, and in having them uh, be, be influential with the people, with Congress, with foreign governments, and things like that. And, and I, I don't quite see that uh, in Mr. Castle. Karen, before we wrap up this, this third part of our series, do you have anything positive or negative that you want to highlight and call our attention to when it comes to Daryl Castle specifically? Uh, I would give, uh, I, w I would say that, that Castle, like, 
when, some of the things that, um, excuse me, because it's getting late, that Christopher had pointed out, I think that Daryl Castle at times tends to be a bit more libertarian than his parties, than his party in general is. Um, the, if you're going to be dealing with winnability and, and items such as that, I think you got to look at more than just the candidate, but the ballot access of the party. And when it comes down to that, I mean, there, there are some serious hurdles there. Um, I would agree with the position that he stated on marriage or civil unions. I forgot how it was worded there. But I, I think that that is kind of in contradictory to their principles. But I'm glad that he does take a, a libertarian position on that. Um, I don't have a lot of negatives because, to be honest with you, I'm not a candidate person. Mm. I think I, I disagree from Christopher on that. I think when you're in – and we'll probably get into this if we do end up doing another segment. But I think your focus when you're dealing with um, third parties – it has to be much more party focused than candidate focused. So my attention about the Constitution Party has been on the party and not nearly as as much on the candidate. Well, I I totally get that. I think it makes sense. Um, but as we talked about last episode, there there are some differences between the candidates and the party that that, that, that are really troublesome. At least when it comes to the Libertarian Party, um, and I'm sure that's the case of the Constitution Party as well. Um, I am interested in doing a part four. You know, we, we spent our first episode getting to know you two and t- talking about the current dilemma that as Christians and even just as other conservatives, uh, fa- or not even as conservatives, uh, anybody, there, almost anybody in this country faces a dilemma given the two major uh, choices that we have before us. And we talked about that dilemma in part one. And in part two, we discussed the Libertarian Party and some of its strengths and weaknesses when it comes to disaffected Christian Republicans. We spent this part three talking about the Constitution Party and its, some of its strengths and weaknesses concerning disaffected Christian Republicans. Um, let's go ahead and, and plan a part four where we will talk about we, the third party options in general. Uh, some of the questions we might talk about are why Christians might want to consider a third party when historically they don't receive a whole lot of the vote. You know, um, Is a third party candidate viable? Is a third party vote really a vote for uh, whichever um, two party candidate wins? You know, the, These and other questions I think are things that, that are worth discussing in a final wrapping up you know part four well i so i've really appreciated your time and, and i'll look forward to sitting down with you guys to talk about um those issues and more in part four uh karen and chris thank you both so much for being here with me tonight all right thank, thank you. you have an awesome night